What do you miss most about worship here at St. Paul's? It's been exactly eight months to the day since a congregation bigger than 10 gathered here in the church for Sunday morning worship. What do you miss? What do your soul and your heart ache for? Over the last few weeks, I have bumped into several members of our congregation who have discovered that the church is open every weekday for private prayer. And I've heard several of you say how much you've missed just stepping into this holy place. Many of us miss the people both the individuals we are accustomed to seeing in church, but also the whole congregation, that mass of people filling the pews, lifting their voices to God as one. Many of us miss the music, feeling our bodies resonate with the powerful organ or the congregation's full-throated singing of a favorite hymn. Several of you have told me how much you long for communion, the consecrated body and blood of our Savior, and the unity between us that that sacrament both represents and inspires. For many of us, it is the liturgy itself that we miss most, not only receiving communion, but standing and sitting and kneeling and singing and listening and praying together those familiar and comforting words of our worship. What we do here in church every Sunday is the anchor for the rest of our week. This place and the prayers that we offer within these sacred walls provide steadiness in a chaotic time. They give us reassurance In the midst of anxiety, they bring us closer to God when God feels so far away. No wonder we miss it so much. We need it, the worship of this place now as much as we ever have, and yet we must remain apart, at least for now. We all miss worshiping at St. Paul's. But I wonder what God misses most about it. Hopefully, God thinks more highly of our solemn assembly than the worship that took place back in Amos's day. I hate, I despise your festivals, God declared, using two verbs of rejection in order to intensify God's sense of displeasure. And I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Actually, the word that the prophet uses to pronounce God's judgment in that part is the word for smell. God refuses to smell the fragrance of their convocations. The attack on the senses continues The offerings of well-being of your fatted animals I will not look upon. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melody of your harps. 
The prophet wants the people to know that there is absolutely nothing about their worship that God will accept, not the sight or the sound or the smell of anything they offer to God. Everything they do, it seems, in worship is abhorrent to the Lord. But why? Are their harps out of tune? Are their cantors under-rehearsed? Are the burnt offerings undercooked? Are the sacrifices less than perfect? In many chapters of Israel's history, the prophets take exception with the content of Israel's worship and their offerings. Whether out of laziness or greed, the people in those moments stop giving back to God their very best and instead bring whatever's left over, the lame and diseased livestock or the grain that has already spoiled. But not this time, not with Amos. This time, as far as we can tell, the music and the offerings and the incense and the prayers were all of the highest quality, a reflection of the people's economic prosperity. In Amos' day, God rejected the people's worship because it was all show and no substance. Because it went through all of the motions but didn't make one bit of difference in the people's lives. In the last verse of today's reading from Amos, God named for God's people what was missing. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melody of your harps, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. We know that verse. We know that verse out of context because the prophets of our own day have used it to name God's vision for our society But for Amos, those words, they were the distillation of everything that was missing from among God's people. Amos was a prophet who traveled from the southern kingdom of Judah to the northern kingdom of Israel. And he brought with him a challenging message that none of the people wanted to hear. This was a time of great prosperity for Israel. The markets were up. The borders were secure. Trade routes and trade deals kept goods flowing in and out of the country and profits flowing into the coffers of business executives and government officials. People, Amos tells us, enjoyed both summer and winter houses and their homes were filled with plush and opulent furniture. The people drank and ate and adorned themselves with the finest things without limit. And all the while, as the rich got richer, the poor sank deeper and deeper into poverty. Amos notes how the poor were losing their homes to unchecked gentrification. They were denied justice by judges and politicians who accepted bribes. They were cheated in the marketplace by dishonest merchants and those who cared not enough for those who starved in front of them because all they cared for was money. 
And what did all of that have to do with worship? Why was the prophet so intent on declaring God's rejection of the people's offerings and prayers? Because religion that is only practiced in temples and synagogues and in churches and not in streets and marketplaces and housing developments is not religion at all. Because worship that pretends to ascribe honor and glory and praise to God without shaping its people in the ways of God is nothing more than self-congratulatory entertainment. In Amos' day, people flocked to sacred shrines in order to celebrate their prosperity. At Bethel, God had revealed God's self to the people's namesake, to Jacob, whom God had renamed Israel. At Beersheba, God had met each of the three patriarchs in order to reassure them that God would always be with them. At Gilgal, Joshua had built an altar of 12 stones where the people had crossed the river Jordan into the promised land. It was at Gilgal where Saul had first been crowned Israel's king. At these three centers of ancestral power, God's people celebrated God's limitless favor and endless blessing. But back home, back in the cities and towns, people were hungry and homeless, hopeless and helpless. And God wasn't going to put up with it anymore. God wasn't going to receive the prayers and the offerings of a people who ignored the very ones whom God cared most about, no matter how beautiful and elegant their worship might be. You cannot worship God in a place of splendor while God's people live in squalor. You cannot give glory to the Most High and ignore the depths of the people's suffering. You cannot preach a message of salvation when there are people who need rescuing right on the other side of the church's doors. Real worship, God-centered worship, is not merely a sacred performance or an offering to God of our Sunday best. It is a transformative encounter with the one who welcomes the stranger, lifts up the downtrodden, speaks good news to the poor, and binds up the brokenhearted. Real worship is a moment when sinful, selfish human beings like us are met by the one who loves them and whose love has the power to make them holy. Real worship does just that. It shapes us into a reflection of our holy God so that we might take the truth of God with us back into the world when we leave this sacred place. That kind of transformation can only happen when worship is honest. We must be honest about who God is and what God demands but also honest about ourselves and our inability to meet those demands without God's help. When we come to worship, we bring to God our very best because God is the one to whom only our best can be given. But we also recognize before God our very worst. 
because we know and acknowledge our brokenness and sinfulness, seeking God's help in order that we might be a part of making justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. That's why we come back to this place every week in order to remember who God is and to remember who we are and to be transformed by an encounter with God's perfecting love. If our worship is going to be honest, if we are going to be honest before God, we must know and trust and believe that God's love is bigger than our failures, that the power of God's mercy is even more powerful than our capacity to sin. I think that's what makes worship in this place so special. St. Paul's is a safe place to be a sinner because we, we believe that God's love has no limits. But this is also a place that believes that God calls us out of our sinfulness and into new lives of holiness. And most important of all, this is a place that believes that God will meet us here in order to make that transformation possible.